0: Test, test, test. There we go. Got it. I'm new at this. (laughs) Well, Happy New Year, beloved. Just when you thought that 2021 couldn't throw anything more at us, we get snowed in last weekend. And I hope that you took advantage of that time and had quality time with those who you were snowed in with. And I'm glad you ventured out this morning and came back to fellowship amongst us. My name is Alan Reeb, if you happen not to know me, I'm an elder candidate here at Restoration Road Church, and it's my honor and um, delight to bring the word to us this morning. A few years back, Microsoft had a little ad campaign, where do you want to go today? And the answer, supposed answer to that question, according to Microsoft standards, were, well, you can go anywhere you want to go with us. That's a good question to ask us this morning as we come to the new year. Where do you want to go this year? Where do you want to go personally as a, as a family, as a church, as a nation? Where do you want? Where do your heart lie? Where, what desires do you have? Our text that is before us this morning from Galatians kind of answers that question this way. Well, I want to go someplace where there's a fruitful, bountiful life in the Spirit. That's what God has designed. That's what God desires. That's what I think the Spirit is wanting to do in my life. That's where I want to go this year. For the unfruitful life is life at dead ends. It's just a non-existent or not happy, not a joyful place to be. So that's how I would answer and introduce our topic this morning is life in the Spirit, the fruitful life, is where I want to go personally and hopefully you will join me. If you would turn your scriptures and open your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 5, I would like to read the text before us and then spend some time just examining it and being encouraged by what Paul has to say to us through the word. Galatians 5 verses 16 through 26. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. That's a mouthful. There's a lot there. And we'll spend this morning looking at it. And then starting next week, we're going to take a short break from going systematically through the book of Galatians and we're going to go just specifically on the fruit of the Spirit and spend eight weeks looking at each individual fruit. And then we'll continue and wrap up the book of Galatians as we approach March uh, and then start an Easter series. So this is kind of an introduction, as it were, to the fruit of the Spirit as we'll look at in in great detail over the next two months. So I encourage you to come and prepare yourself for that study. But this study that lies before us this morning again is a very complex one. And it it appears within the book of Galatians in in this chapter. And as I have read and reread and reread this portion of the text, I keep asking myself and forcing myself to answer the question, well, Why does Paul talk about this here and now? Where does this fit in to the overall flow of what he's saying in the whole book of Galatians? It's just not random thoughts that he is sitting down at a desk and thinking, oh, well, what else can I say to this church now that I've kind of straightened them out a little bit? Oh, I'll go this direction or I'll go this direction. I don't think he was that random. He was much more purposeful. He was much more organized in his thoughts. And this is intended to come at this time in his argument and in his, in his instructions to this church. And so I have looked and looked and I think I've come up with some answers about why this appears where it appears in the book of Galatians. So I hope that you'll follow me in my thoughts. But in order to accurately look specifically at this section, I want to do just a real quick, brief overview of where we've been in the book of Galatians. It's been two weeks since we've gathered, and the holidays come, and our minds become a fog, and maybe you don't remember where we were or what we've talked about so far in the book of Galatians. So I just want to help us all and myself do a, a quick review. Paul says that it was because of a physical problem that he was initially entered the region of Galatia. He doesn't say what that problem was, but maybe there was a, a male Clinic of the first century somewhere in this region, and he was going there for medical treatment. He makes an illusion that he had a problem possibly with his eyes. So envision this. You've had a child or you've seen a child that has pink eye. Their eyes just get swollen and red, and they're itchy, and they're just, they're just uncomfortable. Maybe Paul had a terrible case of pink eye and his eyes were just unbearable, and he was seeking treatment. They didn't have those wonderful little antibiotic drops that we have available to us today, so he was seeking the treatment of the, of the, of the time, which he doesn't say what it was, and we're just left to conjecture. Not that that's really important, but it kind of adds a little bit of flavor to the setting that he finds himself in. He says to the church that, well, you didn't consider me, you, you didn't look down on me because of my physical condition you didn't scorn me you didn't shove me off what is he saying by that it was very common in the first century and before and since that one is considered possibly because of a physical illness or an accident well you deserved it because god's judging you god's angry with you so therefore you had to encounter this and it's wrong that's an error that's not true and so paul gives the church there the the credit By saying, Well, when I came to you with this physical problem, you didn't shut me off, you didn't ostracize me, but you listened to what I had to say. As Paul was possibly seeking medical treatment in this area, he did what he normally did because he's an evangelist and he was on an evangelistic journey. He went to the local synagogue. And there he found, as he was accustomed to finding, observant Jews and proselytized Gentiles who were there meeting on the Sabbath, opening scrolls of the Old Testament and reading. And the rabbi would explain. And Paul took opportunity to tell them, as he had often does, that, well, I have good news for you, people. The Messiah that was talked about from Genesis 1, through the Old Testament, the Messiah that you have been anticipating and looking forward to. He's come. He's here. He's lived. He's died. He rose again from the dead. And he offers good news. What good news, Paul? Forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And that his, his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was fully acceptable before God the Father as a payment, as a propitiation for our sins. And it was he, the, God's good pleasure, God the Father's good pleasure to raise him from the dead and accredit him with life. That is an approval of his satisfaction, that his, his sacrifice for our sins was atoned for. And that by belief in that sacrifice, you can have new life. And they accepted the message, they warmly embraced the gospel, and they said, the new life that you have offered is, is ours, and we are grateful and appreciative. And this, these, these little small churches started to grow in this region. Paul sp- spent a little bit of time there to instruct them, to appoint leadership, and then he went on. And he heard not too much later that these churches were being affected by Judaizers that had come there from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he was a little bit distraught that these churches that had been started and founded and got off to such a good start were now embracing things that weren't very good. These Judaizers came on the heels of Paul's ministry and they had two main accusations against what Paul had to say. The first one was to discredit Paul. They would say to these churches, you know, you have to re-examine this guy called Paul. He wasn't really preaching to you a message that he had gotten from God. He was a very, it was a very earthly, it was his own message. He was self-promoting himself. And he's not accepted by the brethren back in Jerusalem by any means. No, 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 no. You have to really question his authenticity. So Paul spent the first two chapters of the book of Galatians defending himself himself giving credit to himself, saying that my message was not an earthly message. My message was not one that I received, but it was one from God. And he taught me, he told me, I spent this time in Arabia being discipled by God, and it was only him, and it's a message that I delivered to you that I received. And then the Judaizers came along and said, well, what Paul had to say was okay, but it wasn't enough. There's more that needed to be added to the message that he gave you. You see, he, 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 he avoided the fact that it's necessary to be circumcised, you Gentiles that come into the family of faith. You have to be circumcised. Not only that, but you have to observe the Sabbath and certain festivals and seasons, and you need the diet restrictions, and, and on and on and on they went. And these churches started to embrace what these Judaizers were saying. So Paul spent chapters 3 and chapter 4 of Galatians, going back to the Old Testament and defending his message saying, this is what you know to be true. You know the story of Abraham. You know Isaac and you know Ishmael. You know what went on back there. You know that from the very beginning salvation was by faith and that's all that I proclaim to you. And the things that you are now embracing are not true and accurate. You're putting yourself under a yoke. You're putting yourself back in slavery. Stop. Reconsider. You have fallen from grace. Don't go back under the law. And he starts chapter 5 talking about freedom. It was for freedom that Christ sets you free, people. And he brings in the Liberty Bell and, and bangs it. And you hear this resounding crescendo. Freedom. Don't go back under slavery, but live the freed life that God has called you and I to live in. And so we come to chapter five in this section where Paul is kind of continuing to explain the problem that he saw in these Galatian churches. How did that happen? How could they have started so good they hadn't gotten off track? How could they have started in purity of doctrine but then started embracing things that really weren't true? And how could they have fallen from grace as he says they were? Well, that's the idea. That's the questions that I try to answer as I approach this part of chapter 5. And I think that I have some answers to to those questions. He starts out in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of your flesh are set against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, and they keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So the first thing Paul does is he explains the conflict. He offers an explanation for the conflict that he saw within this church, and it, in fact, explains the conflict that each of us have within our lives. And it started back in Genesis, the first part of Genesis, when, when our original parents sinned. And they were judged by God the Father and cast out of the garden, and they were condemned, and they, at that point became sinners. Before that point, they lived a life of purity, a life of of bliss, a life of intimate fellowship with God the Father. But as they were cursed and set out of the garden, they had, at that point, a sin nature. And every generation after them inherited this sin nature. You see, we come from a Christian worldview. If we take the Bible seriously, we understand that man is more than just physical. There's more to us than just our physical bodies. The naturalists among us in our culture and in our society would argue, no, 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 no. There is nothing above and beyond the natural, what I can taste, see, feel, and discover in the natural sense. Your brain is just chemical reactions taking place and that explains everything. That when you die, you die, you have come from dust, you turn back to dust, period. Nothing beyond that. Scripture would argue with that. Scripture says that we were made in the image of God. And as image bearers of God, we have a soul, we have a spirit. There is a metaphysical part Of our being that isn't physical, that can't be put in the test tube, that can't be looked at under a microscope. It's other than physical. It's called a soul or a spirit. And that soul and our spirit inhabits our nature. When we die, our spirit lives on. It's eternal in nature. It never dies. It never dies. It continues to live. And this spirit, our soul, has been affected by sin. It's called a fallen nature, a fallen nature. Scripture says that because we have this fallen nature, we're not as bad as we possibly can be, but we're as bad off as we possibly can be. Because that's what alienates us from a holy and righteous God. It's our sin that has kept us away from God and has kept us um, distant from God. So there are those among us that would say, okay, I agree that we are a spiritual being. Well, I agree that there is a spiritual part to my, my nature. But it can be filled, it can be satisfied. Our souls and our spirits can be satiated with things other than the truth from God that who created it. They can be filled with other attractions and other idols, as they're called in Scripture. So there are those who give credit to the fact that we're spiritual beings but still don't give full credit to the biblical truth of who we are in our our makeup. If you don't believe that we're born with a sin nature, try playing the game sorry with a five-year-old. If you've ever played the game Sorry, I wouldn't recommend it. I hate it. It's, a, it's an insidious game because you can be winning. You can be on the verge of winning when one of your opponents picks up one of those dirty cards and sends you all the way back home, and you have nothing to say about it. But a 5-year-old experiencing that frustration is just very expressive. They can go from the height of ecstasy because I'm going to win to I have to start all over again. And so their despair, their anger, their revenge, it's just a a game that brings out the worst in us. Well, as an adult, you've you've got a handle on it. You don't fully express, maybe, your fallen nature. But a five-year-old, there's no restraint. They're just all over the table. They're just fully expressive. Parents, you understand this to be true if you've raised a kid. We have a sin nature that can't be denied. It is part of us. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Why do you look at me cross-eyed? You're a teacher. You've got a PhD in theology, Nicodemus. Don't you know this? It's always been true throughout the whole Old Testament history. This regeneration has been needed. Your heart, your soul, your spirit has needed to be renewed. I'm not saying anything new. Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus. Paul in the book of Romans, which Romans is basically the book of Galatians just extended. It's just a, you know, Galatians is the cliff notes of Romans. He deals with a lot of the same subjects, a lot of the same illustrations, a lot of the same problems, but in the book of Romans, it's much more detailed. And so in the book of Romans, Paul goes into great detail about this original sin nature of ours, and he says, he calls it, you are in Adam when you are born. You are in Adam. You inherited this sin nature. It was imputed to you, this sin nature. Everything that was true about Adam is now true about you. His alienation from God, his sin, his condemnation, he is under God's wrath. That's what's true about you in Adam. In an unregenerate state, you are in Adam. But the good news is that Jesus has come and offered salvation, Then the gospel is, is free for the taking, that by faith you can be reborn, and now you become in Christ. Whereas sin was imputed to you through Adam, righteousness is now imputed to you through Jesus. So if you think it's unfair that we inherited a sin nature from Adam, it's not unfair because God always and continually provided a remedy for our situation. And now he says, in Christ, everything that is true about Christ is true about you. His standing before God the Father, his acceptance before God the Father, his righteousness is now yours in your account. You have been reborn, you are renewed, you are in Christ. That's good news. That's great news. But we still have a problem. In our current standing, in our current state, we still have the flesh. We still have a part of our nature that isn't regenerate. In fact, Paul says it can't be regenerate. I know that is in my flesh, he says, dwells no good thing. There is nothing in our flesh, which we still have, even though we're regenerate, we still have a flesh, but it is not redeemable. It's trainable. Oh, We can train our flesh. We can subdue it. We can modify it. We can, we can confine it. But given the opportunity, it will express itself, won't it? It will reveal itself. It will be seen. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, Avoid earthly lusts because they wage war against your soul. That's harsh language, very descriptive language of this battle. If you needed more than what Paul has said in Galatians, he, he accurately describes this struggle, this war that is going on within our lives, within our nature. It's... it's flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit. Peter says it's a war, and it's because of imputed sin. So Paul first starts out by defining the conflict. Well, this conflict, Galatian churches, that you've experienced, that you've seen, that you are now walking in, this is where it started. This is where you have to understand it on a spiritual level. And then he goes into this the, uh, the exposes the deeds of the flesh where this lengthy list of of expressions of our flesh are detailed. Throughout the New Testament the various writers at various times will give lists like this of aberrant behaviors. They're not all the same, um, they're different, and they're not exhaustive either. That's why he kinda ends this list with with saying, well this is some of the things to avoid and um, there's more. There's, there's, there's additional things that I could list. So he could go on with a lengthy paragraph or two or three or maybe a whole chapter on aberrant fleshly behaviors. But the fact of the matter is that these things are and have always been a part of human nature from the very start. Well, how does this affect what he is wanting to tell the Galatians? How does this affect... Well, how does fleshly expression reveal itself in the Galatian churches? And I think I have a short answer to that. <laughs> You're saying short. How short is this going to be? <laughs> Hang on. Back in, in Genesis 12, Abraham was called by Jehovah God. Abraham, I want to bless you. I want to make you a blessing to the nations. I want to make your, 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 your generations that come after you more numerous than the stars in heaven and the sand, and I want to bless the world through you. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham pulled up from where he was living in the Ur of the Chaldees and went to Canaan. Once he was at Canaan, he still didn't have a descendant. He lived his life, and scriptures say that Abraham prospered. He prospered. He was under the hand of blessing from God Almighty. It was 24 years later that God gave Abraham the instructions to circumcise yourself as a sign of the covenant. As a sign of the covenant, 24 years after the covenant was started, Abraham now circumcised himself and all the males in his household. How quickly, though, the act of circumcision did not stay a result of that covenant, but it became a requirement of the covenant. Very quickly, it became a requirement. In fact, if you look in Romans chapter 4, Paul talks in detail about this very fact. He says, was Abraham required to do it when the covenant was inaugurated? No, he wasn't. It happened later giving proof to the fact that circumcision was never meant to be a a cause or a requirement of the covenant. It was always meant to be a result of of the covenant with God. But how quickly an item like that, that is a result, can turn into a requirement. 400 years after Abraham, Moses, leading 2 million people out of Egypt across Sinai Desert, come to a mountain, and God brings Moses up there to give him more laws. And he returns, and they're all detailed in the book of Leviticus, 613 very specific laws that govern their social life, their diet life, their religious life, all aspects of their life were governed by these laws that Moses received on Sinai. Forward all the way to the time of Christ. How many laws did the Pharisees adjudicate? Did they still look at 613 laws as governing the life of Israel? No. Josephus, the historian, says that by the time of Christ, the Pharisees had more than 6,000 laws that they were adjudicating. How could 613 laws turn into 6,000? Well, if a few laws are good, more are better. You see, there's something about our flesh that looks upon an achievement as being meritorious. I'm worthy of God's attention if I perform the right way. If I do something the right way, then I'm worthy of the attention. And so it was this system of blessing and cursing based upon how good I behaved or how bad I behaved. And by the time Jesus came on the scene, one of his first parables was new wine. I can't put new wine into old wineskins was what he was saying, that yes, what he was saying was that drastically different from the governing principles of Judaism at the time that he came onto the scene, that Moses wouldn't have even recognized it. It had turned into something completely different. Why? I think one explanation is the influence of our flesh. We want to be able to pin an achievement, a pin a dessert on something that we can do. We deserve God's attention. We deserve God's grace. We deserve God's benefits because I'm performing the right way. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. You're accursed if you believe that. You are putting yourself under bondage if you believe that. You are putting yourself under the weight of, and the restrictions of the law. Don't go there. And I think he's labeling the flesh that's within us And the propensities that it has to accomplish that distortion of the true gospel. You see, it had always been true from the get-go that it was faith is what is required to establish a relationship with Almighty God. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Habakkuk the prophet comes on centuries later and says, The righteous shall live by faith, quoted by Paul in the book of Romans. It was the same principle throughout the whole Old Testament in an unpolluted and an uncorrupted way that faith and faith alone was always the necessity for a relationship with God. But our flesh has added performance to it. Our flesh has added things that were a result of our relationship with God. Our flesh has made them a requirement. And so Paul is trying to correct that distortion. The true gospel that you have received, Galatians, the true gospel is faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. Don't add requirements that God doesn't add, faith is what is necessary. And then Paul goes into this beautiful section that you have probably have memorized. You have probably have a plaque hanging on the wall in your home. It's, it's prolific, it is it is ubiquitous, it's always before us. We 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 preachers love to preach about this. It's it's a beautiful part of, of the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll spend a good deal of time in the next few weeks talking about these attributes. But then Paul goes into the life in the Spirit. This is what life looks like. This is what the ex- Spirit-expressed empowered, spirit life looks like. It's not in bondage. It's not in jail. It's not with a schoolmaster over us. It's not with somebody cracking the whip. But it's life expressed beautifully through the Spirit. I don't remember much from when I was 8 years old but I remember a weekend that I spent with my uncle. We went into the city of Chicago. Back then, newspapers were the only thing that were recycled. And what people would do was they would bind up all of their newspapers and they would put them in the alley behind their two-flat or their apartment building. And on weekends, different community groups would drive up and down the alleys collecting newspapers on what they called a paper drive. They didn't have recycling trucks. They were unheard of, but Nonprofits usually, because they would then turn in these, these papers for recycling. And I spent this weekend with my uncle and a group of men from his church driving up and down the alleyways in Chicago, collecting newspapers, throwing bundles into the back of the... Oh, it was a riot for a little kid to do that. It was just so fun. But these men were singing a song. They had probably sung other songs. I don't remember. But one song stuck in my mind these many years later. John W. Peterson was a prolific songwriter back in the 60s and 70s and he had just come out with a song that maybe you have sung before or heard it sung called Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never forget. You can probably sing the verses. But the chorus, Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul. That could be written over this section of Galatians. That's what Paul's heart is. Heaven comes down and glory God's glory, God's presence, God's wonderful reality fills my soul. To Paul, he can't imagine a life that has been regenerated and renewed and redeemed and is in in relationship with God. He can't imagine that life not expressing it, not displaying it, not resulting in behavior that is God glorifying and honoring. These attributes are not requirements but they're results of our relationship with God. Heaven comes down and glory fills my soul. You read this list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You go, I know where you're going, preacher. You're going to put me under a load. You're just going to make me walk out of here with my head hanging low. I I, I can't, you know... (laughs) You know what? You know yourself better than anybody, and you know where these things are deficient in your life. Who doesn't? I do. You said, you know, I've taken one of those personality tests. I kind of know myself. I score pretty high on the J-E-R-K scale, and I just am not going to measure up. I just can't do these things. It's not within me. You're closer than you've ever been. That's a great point to be, because glory fills my soul. It's not you pulling your up yourself up by your bootstraps and trying to perform these things or to make these things true in your life. It's God's glory coming into your life, into your soul, into my soul, bringing his presence with him and expressing itself in these wonderful godly attributes. You've heard it said that nature abhors a vacuum. You've maybe done an experiment back in your high school physics class where the teacher brought in a vacuum tube and sucked out all the air And then perform some some neat experiments. There's a reason that vacuums don't exist in nature because nature will express every force imaginable to alleviate the vacuum. As soon as that valve on that vacuum tube is, is open, air rushes right in and the vacuum disappears. The same is true with your soul and with my soul, it abhors a vacuum. Your soul was designed, your soul was created to have fellowship with its creator. And if it's alienated, if it's separated, if it's sinful, it wants to be filled with something. It desires, it will, nature will, will go to every level to avoid our souls from being a vacuum. It won't happen. It will be filled with something. What is our souls filled with? What is our spirits being satisfied with? Paul's instructions to the church in Galatians were really not much different from a lot of the prophets' instructions throughout the whole Old Testament. The way to cure our problems, the way to cure our ills, the way to right our sick hearts, our sick souls, has been pretty much consistent. Listen to what Jeremiah says in chapter 4. If you, Israel, want to come back, says the Lord, if you want to come back to me, you must get rid of those disgusting idols. Get them out of my sight, and you must no longer go astray. You must be truthful, honest, and upright when you take an oath saying, as surely as the Lord lives, if you do, the nations will pray to be as blessed by him as you are and will make him the object of their boasting. Yes, the Lord has this to say to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, like a farmer breaking up hard, unplowed ground, you must break your rebellious will and make a new beginning. Just as a farmer must clear away thorns lest the seed is wasted, you must get rid of the sin that is ruining your lives. Just as ritual circumcision cuts out the foreskin as an external symbol of dedicated covenant commitment, you must genuinely dedicate yourself to the Lord." and get rid of everything that hinders your commitment to me, people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. You know what? Circumcision is still needed. It was never meant to just be a physical expression, but it was always meant to symbolize a spiritual reality of cutting off the flesh, get rid of it. It's no different in the New Testament. Rid yourself of the flesh. Cut it off. Subdue it. Can't eliminate it, but it has to be handled. So you hear things in the New Testament like this put off the old self and put on the new. Paul will say in in the book of Colossians, just as you have received Christ, so walk in him. Well, what does that mean? How do you receive Christ? The gospel, you accept the gospel, the free gift of salvation through faith that you believe that Jesus' death on the cross on your behalf was satisfaction for the penalty of the sin that you and I carry. And that by his satisfaction of that debt, we now have an, a relationship with God. That's what starts our relationship. Paul says, the same way that you started it, continue it. There's no difference. You're not working now. You're accepting the free gift of salvation and the free gift of God's grace in your life, just like when you started. Continue the same thing. Why? Because it's the life of Christ in us that rids our flesh of its influence, that expresses this beautiful, fruitful, bountiful life. Well, how do you say that? How do you come to that conclusion? Paul says in Colossians, Jesus is our life. What do you mean he is our life? That's what it means. He's our spiritual life. He's inhabiting our soul and our spirit. Your spirit, your soul, the immaterial part of you, is just not left as an orphan. It's not left to wander the world seeking satisfaction here, there, or the other place. It's inhabited by the triune God of the universe. God is dwelling within you and within me. You become the temple of the most holy God. Is it any wonder why that the new life that is expressed in us is the life of Christ? These are his attributes. These are his values. These are his ideas that are coming out of us. That's the idea of what Paul is saying. We don't have to look very far around us to see the effects of sin. We look within us. We all could give testimony to the effects, the detrimental, the disastrous, the the decay that sin has caused, the ills, the hardships, the heartaches that sin has caused in our own life. We look into our family to see what sin has done in our family. We can look in our church. We can look in our community. We can look in the world. Nature has fallen. The most recent devastating fires going through Colorado or the tornadoes that hit the Midwest earlier this fall, last fall. Mr. Rogers, a while back, had a session where he was looking at his young audience and trying to give them instructions on how to cope with disasters. A child who is a a part of of a harmful accident or a disaster, or sees it, is affected in a, in a very straight and straightforward way. And Mr. Rogers was trying to give comfort and give help to how to understand when they see a disaster. And his advice was this, and I think it was godly. He said, look for the helpers. Look for those who come to help. And they're there for a good reason. They're there to help alleviate this situation, whether it." A fire or a car accident or a building collapse or whatever. Look for the helpers. They want to help. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, love is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament law. Love. What do you mean love? We are the helpers. You and I as members of the body of Christ, we are the helpers. We can see the effects of sin around us, we are called to be the helpers, to rise up to the occasion, to lend an aid. We're not perfect. We're not superior. We're not righteous, except in Christ we are. But we have been given resource. We've been given the ability to help. That's what we're called to do. That's why Paul says that this love thing that he's talking about is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament law. It's what God is ultimately trying to do in our lives, is to make us the resource that reaches out and God through us. That's why he says in Romans chapter 7, after Paul goes through this, the detailed struggle that he's having with his flesh, Who will set me free from this bondage of sin? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the key. Jesus living his life in and through us is the solution to our flesh. A young singer-songwriter by the name of Brandon Lake, who sang a song in the Chosen Christmas movie, had a line in the song that he sang that just kind of struck a chord with me. His lyrics were this. He says, Come on, my soul. Don't you get shy on me. Lift up your song. You have a lion inside of your lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. I love that. I love that. Brothers and sisters, don't let your soul get shy on you. You've got a lion inside of your lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. As we approach this new year, as you ask that question, where do you want to go this year? Realize you've got a lion inside your soul. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is living within you and it's living within me. Is there anything too hard? We look at this list of fruits of the Spirit. Is any of that beyond us? It all is, but it's not beyond our Savior. It's His life in us that's going to do that. Don't let your soul go shy on you. You've got a lion ready to roar. Let it. Pray with me. God, thank you for the beauty, for the encouragement, for the simplicity of your word, and yet the incredible complexity and the awesomeness of it. God, thank you for inhabiting our souls and our spirits with your person, with your son, and with your spirit. Thank you that we are saved from sin. Thank you that not just saved from sin, but you've given us new life. You've regenerated us. We are reborn, and we have a lion within us. I pray that we would learn how to let that lion out, how we can express your presence more beautifully and effectively and efficiently. In this coming year, that's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.